Hello, I'm Stephen Fry, a trustee of the Royal Academy of Arts and very proud to be so. Welcome to our podcast. I'm delighted to introduce tonight's panel discussion, Gendered Materials, which concludes our week-long event programme celebrating International Women's Day. Tonight's event explores the relationship between art, gender and materials and asks whether the creative process, artist biography and details of scale, material and language assign a gender in our reading of art. For this panel discussion, we welcome three artists and the first artist tonight is Anne Christopher, who is on the end here, who has completed numerous public and private commissions both in the UK and the USA and is exhibited in group exhibitions both nationally and internationally. She has recently exhibit, exhibited in solo shows at Pangolin in London, the Royal Academy, and Ra the Rabley Drawing Centre in Marlborough. Anne was elected a member of the Royal Academy in 1980, becoming a full Royal Academician in 1989. There's a few images of her work. The second artist that joins this panel is Mark Dunhill of Dunhill and O'Brien. He is the academic dean at Central St. Martins, responsible for the art, culture and enterprise, drama and performance and graphic communication programmes. His artwork has been exhibited at galleries including Icon in Birmingham, the Arnolfini in Bristol, Museum of Modern Art in Oxford and Tate Britain. Since 1998, Mark's art practice has developed in collaboration with his partner Tomiko O'Brien and together their work is concerned with the tools and procedures of making. The final artist that joins us tonight is Coco Crampton, who graduated from the Royal Academy Schools in 2014 and is repre represented by the Baumax Gallery in London. Coco's work was exhibited at last year's Royal Academy Summer Exhibition and recent shows include Graduation at Studio Lee Gallery in London and Kingly Things with Chandelier Projects. To chair tonight's talk is Helena Reckitt, Senior Lecturer in Curating at Goldsmiths University, who comes to us with extensive international experience in developing curatorial and critical research projects that focus on the overlapping realms in art, curating, feminism and sexual politics. So without further ado, please join me in welcoming tonight's guests. Thank you very much, Amy. Thanks for all your care and attention behind the scenes. Much appreciated. As you know, we're here with three artists from somewhat uh, different generations, so I think it'll be interesting to reflect on whether things have changed um, across the time frames of the different artists' experiences. And we'll be asking to reflect on the relationship between gender and materials in their work, as well as more broadly, um, we'll be asking whether we still define artwork as feminine or masculine and looking at how the biography of an artist impacts on how their work is made and interpreted and the ways in which gender plays out in various other decisions that they might make about their work, including its production, presentation and even questions of promotion, circulation and storage of art world might come up in our discussions. Um, so, in an era in which I gender identities seem to be increasingly up for grabs, with more and more people choosing genders other than those assigned to them at birth, hacking biopolitical gender systems and technologies, and rejecting binary divisions um, of gender in favour of categories that are more fluid and provisional, we might ask whether male and female categories of art making are, so are as clearly deline delineated as they have been in the past. Um, yet I suspect that the hierarchies associated with stereotypically gendered forms of art making, processes, materials, and so on, are probably more stubbornly rooted in culture and the sort of collective psyche than co contemporary gender critiques might suggest. After all, it was only in the early 70s that feminist artists took on the project of reclaiming forms of um, art and, and craft and making that were devalued because of their associations with the female realm. I'm talking about, you know, um, craft production, the decorative, forms of anonymous cultural production, as well as collective activities. So they weren't just celebrating these forms of making and these aesthetics, they were also shining light on the frustration that's, that was expressed 
in the amount of kind of undervalued and under-recognized labor that went into these, um, these kinds of often sort of domestic activities. And they wanted to draw attention uh, to that sort of denial of the female, the female realm. Now, the question of whether to reclaim and celebrate, or in other words, deconstruct supposedly female traditions has been one that feminists have devoted a lot of attention to. And the dangers of ghettoization have um, often been at the center of these discussions. So in 1971, the feminist art, um, art critic Lucy Lippard remarked on these risks of ghettoization, uh, reviewing an exhibition called Household Images in Art. She discussed how contemporary women artists hesitated to use the color pink and to, and to depict domestic themes in their work for fear that they would be stereotyped for doing so. Had the first pop artists been women, Lippard suggested, the movement might never have left the kitchen. We've also, um, within feminism, had the issue of what it means to actually have space to make your art. Running a studio is an expensive um, process and for many women artists in the past, um, a luxury that they couldn't afford. One response to that um, issue that I'm particularly fond of is a show from the early 1970s called Feministo, in which women artists um, kind of recognizing how few of them actually had a separate space for making art, uh, made work that they circulated through the post and they were often working with kind of samplers. So very easy to make, you know, at the kitchen table or in bed um, and very easy to circulate. So some of these sort of DIY tactics, I think, have a, have a gendered dimension. Um, now, whereas women artists, where they work with stereotypically gendered materials, are often um, or have often worried about being um, ghettoized because of that, um, we haven't really seen the same with men, who, male artists who work in what we might think of as very overtly masculinist ways. So, um, thinking think about minimalist artists in the 60s, who were working with you know very butch uh, processes and techniques. Robert Smithson and Michael Heiser using bulldozers and dump trucks. Richard Serra, Donald Judd, and Sol LeWitt working with industrial fabrication processes. Or in the work of Robert Morris and Carl Andre, building materials. Um, those, those artists are not really written about as masculinist or overtly male artists. So I think it's interesting to think about where the emphasis falls and what that says about the kind of biographies and gender politics at play. Um, these artists even uh, fended off associations that did not fit a sort of classically masculine, which we can also think of as classically universalist review. Um, review. When a review in Art Forum likened Carl Andre's brick pieces to rugs, he wrote to the magazine to object and affirmed the work's associations with bricklaying, so reaffirming kind of class politics, but also very male identifications. Um, the artist Linda Benglis poked fun at this um, kind of machismo that was inherent to some of male-dominated minimalism. Um, you may be familiar with her notorious advert that she placed in Art Forum, um, where we see her naked, oiled up, and sporting a large strap-on dildo. In an article that appeared in the same issue of the magazine, she claimed that her ad was all about the question of taking up space. As she said to the writer, Robert Pincus Witten, art in New York is all about territory. So there is only one pertinent question, how big? How big is the zone you capture and occupy with your painting, your floor sculpture, your video piece, your public persona? How powerful is the image that establishes your presence? So these are some of the issues we're going to think about tonight. Um, the whole question of gendered materials, on the one hand, I think we, we can think about it quite specifically. So, um, you know, how are the artists here and artists that will um, come up in the discussion, how are they overtly working with gendered materials? Does it matter that we know um, what their genders are? 
Um, but I also think it raises huge other issues to do with um, the gender division of labor and even what art materials are. As I was thinking about this talk, I was thinking, actually, um, whereas in the past, this, the, uh, the, the taint of feminization was something that um, particularly women artists thought very carefully about in terms of the tactics they adopted, under our current regime of sort of late capitalism, actually a lot of classically feminine ways of working have really been embraced. So these days, we're all meant to work in ways and act in ways and perform in ways that are kind of classically feminine, flexible, communicative, sociable, agreeable. You know, women have always been expected to do the work of smoothing things over. And in the kind of tense political times and tense economic and precarious economic times we live in, these feminized traits of kind of making everything work you know, teamwork, etc. behind the scenes care. This is very feminized. And one of the, the, thing, one of the great um, requirements of um, the contemporary labor force is people management. Being able to manage teams um, draws on a lot of very feminine, classically feminized skills. So I was even thinking, well, actually, people management is, is a gen the people, other bodies, Agenda, uh, that, that raises issues of gendered production, especially in the light of kind of relational aesthetics, socially engaged art, where, uh, where you know, making art doesn't necessarily involve being in the studio and having an object, but it involves setting up a social situation. Um, how does gender play into this? So um, here are just some issues to think about. Um, we are just going to go straight into the discussion and not really sure where it's going to go. Um, but I want to start with quite a broad question. Um, and it's to do with sort of where we learn that certain ways of working have a gender association. So where do we learn that crocheting is fem feminine and let's say woodwork is masculine? Is this something that happens at home? Is it, how does it happen at school? What about the art school? Um, so I think I'll start with Anne. Can you say when this first entered your consciousness? I think probably my grandfather who made toys for me out of um, orange boxes. Um, this was the same grandfather that was also a jeweler. So I would spend my childhood when I visited him going through all his um, drawers of tools which for some reason I was just drawn to. I mean, I, I really cannot explain why I do what I do. And listening to your conversation, I'm having a sort of gender crisis, I think. Mm -hmm. <laughs> um, so it, it was really him, I think, and, and the making. Um, but, it, but it just connected. It wasn't something that he talked to me about particularly. I went to him, so there was something just innate that drew me to, to making. And when you studied um, art, I mean, the work that you make, it takes up a lot of space and it's quite powerful looking art. I mean, was that considered unusual? Um, well, you're looking here at sort of, you know, late career, mid-career work. When I was a student, um, it, it was much smaller and I was using, I actually liked initially the sculpture department and what was interesting was I had a female sculpture tutor. Now whether that had an effect on me or not, I don't know. It really was nothing that I considered strange. They did actually make a suggestion though, which was quite interesting in terms of gender. So I'm talking about what used to be called pre-diploma, which is now called Foundation. Is it still called Foundation? Mm -hmm. Anyway, um, I had to choose um, what uh, area of art I wanted to major in. And they said, oh, you're going to do textiles, aren't you? And I went, why? Well, you seem to like being in the print room. I said, yes, I like the actual physical process of printing. I do not want to do textiles. And they said, well, what do you want to do? And I said, I want to do sculpture. And that was it. Um, so I had, there had been a presumption. Yeah. Yeah. Um, what about you, Mark? 
and, and obviously you work collaboratively, so there might be some issues about um, how that plays out in terms of gender and other people's perceptions. But, but to the question of when your gender awareness um, stemmed. Well, going right back, uh, it was my mother who really introduced me to tools and to making. Uh, my father didn't know one end of a hammer from another. And um, so it... It, it was my mother who built shelves in my bedroom and to see her wielding bits of timber and making uh, brackets and uh, whatever was really inspiring actually and introduced me to the whole idea of what it was to make things. She actually had studied textiles and was a, an extraordinary uh, textile artist in her own right and um, would make all sorts of things uh, so as, as a maker, she was uh, a really great example for me uh, to follow. Um, as far as art school is concerned, I think, of course, most of the tutors, uh, certainly in sculpture, if not all, actually all were male in my experience, certainly uh, early on. In fact, almost the entire way through, I would say, from BA and, and, and MA, disappointingly. But, of course, the students were all shades of kind of gender, if you like, in terms of, of course, male and female, but, but demonstrated that you didn't have to be macho, uh, a macho artist. You, and some, some of the females were more macho than the males. So, I mean, I, I think that's still a wonderful thing about art school, is that you're entering a space where gender is challenged and, and questioned in all sorts of very uh, overt, uh, explicit ways uh, and also in much more subtle ways that you discover through getting to know people. Um, as far as uh, collaborating is concerned with my partner, Tomiko, um, yes, of course, everything had to change. I mean, this wasn't until 1998, so I had already made a lot of work as a solo artist, but in a, in a way, all the rules were changed at that point. One of the things we realised pretty quickly, we created a, a third artist that we didn't know who it was. It didn't, have a, it didn't have a name, and it certainly didn't have a gender. That was quite helpful, because it enabled us to sort of distance ourselves, remove ourselves from the work to some extent, because, of course, in a, in a, in a collaboration, and certainly to begin with, the issue of the hand of the artist and the authorial voice was, was something we were really questioning. And um, so we're perhaps deliberately using materials and using methods that were confusing uh, our own sense of our gender and our own history as, as, as makers uh, in order to try and uh, arrive at a way of making work from a more critical standpoint. And um, that turned, in, for us, I think, into something very, very challenging, but also very exciting and, and opened up new ways of working. What were you doing before and, and how did it change? I was using stone, I was using steel, I was using wood, I was also using paper, I was using all sorts of materials. I have to say I never really, I have to be careful here, I did like going to stone quarries and humping big chunks of stone. I mean, I did like all that and I suppose that's a sort of male macho thing, but um, I knew plenty of females carvers and, and people work, working with heavy materials. So I didn't, I didn't, um, didn't think of that as gendered. I just, I just enjoyed the physicality. And I've always enjoyed the physicality of making sculpture and handling materials and having to be, having to sort of listen to what materials are telling you and, and how they, they might start to determine uh, the development of, of a piece of work. Um, and I think Tomiko equally enjoys that and, and is challenged by that. So, um, so where d what, what did your collaboration open up for you? Oh, a completely different way of thinking about making work because uh, you simply stand in a different position in relation to the work. So, um, and, and, and how... I become identified with what we do is interesting and very different to what I think I do and I, the way I identified with what I did previously. Mm -hmm. And, of course, it's, it, it has to be a dialogue and, and it has to uh, take a kind of often a circuitous route in, in finding some kind of form and um, question. Uh, 
uh, that, that feeds into the work. Coco, you're probably the artist, uh, and I've never met the speakers before tonight, so it's a bit of a blind date, but you're probably the artist whose work seems to be the most sort of self-consciously engaging with questions of gender and materials mm -hmm. and, and uh, feminized traditions. Um, can you talk about where your kind of gender consciousness in relation to art making came from? Um, I mean, I studied painting for my BA, um, but I think, I guess in my, at the end of the second year, I was asked if I would mind moving to the sculpture department for my third year, not to why, study. Why did they ask that? It wasn't to study sculpture, it was because they had um, limited space. Oh, so they just kind of uh, needed, needed a few people to move over, so I moved over. And um, I mean, the sculpture was taught in a completely separate building, so it was kind of, um, it felt like a remote thing to me, but actually, um, and it was also quite an intimidating environment for me just because it did feel very um, sort of macho and it was, uh, everyone, um, all the tutors there and the technicians were all male. And I guess um, you kind of had to go down into the basement to access the workshops. It just felt a little bit, you know, um, on the other side. So then, but actually having my studio in that department really sort of um, had a dramatic effect on the work, you know, and I started, I was quite um, influenced by it and actually, I think through being um, immersed in that environment, um, realized that um, by taking a more sort of assertive attitude to um, accessing some of these things, then I could get a lot more from, from the course. So it kind of had a big effect on me at that stage. Um, and my work did actually become more, three-dimensional, so I think, it, yeah, I moved away from painting quite a bit. Um, and, yeah, so that's sort of where um, that change happened. Because yeah. you're citing a lot of domestic um, tropes in, your, in the images that you've shown tonight. Mm. Um, was that a sort of gender-conscious choice? Yeah. Um, I guess I'm looking at um, the gendered associations of the materials in themselves, but also um, the objects that I might choose to look at. So in the image here, um, the, the light sitting on top of the quilt is a sort of a reinterpretation of a design um, by Ernest Race. Um, it was a sort of a design for a bookcase that he sort of had two versions of this design. Um, this one that I've interpreted here um, was from, from 1963, and it's a, a bookcase specifically made for penguin books because the shelves are sort of of that size. And um, so I was sort of drawn to this object, and I guess it's a male designer um, from that period. Uh, and so something intrigued me about it, and it's um, this idea of perhaps disrupting the function of it by making it into a light instead of... Um, a piece that held books um, was one way of kind of having a conversation with it, um, but also changing the um, the colours within it. And also having not seen the original bookcase, I was un unaware of its scale, you know, when he, he made it. Um, it was only a lot later that I came across an original when it was a lot smaller than the one that I'd okay. sort of made myself. So it's a kind of... Yeah, I think sort of... Um, Perhaps it was a kind of a, a reenactment, and that's the first time I'd sort of considered this idea of role play or kind of um, sort of taking on another, uh, perhaps a male designer's um, sort of uh, piece of work and sort of kind of reauthoring it in a way, or just having some sort of um, sort um, an engagement with it that uh, through the material. Yeah, um, and then I've continued to do similar things sort of in later pieces of work so I think also offsetting it on this quilt which is a sort of um, associated with a domestic craft that um, sort of female domestic craft again kind of brings into question some of the um, associations of materials there 
Do you think you work with materials that have overtly gendered connotations, or has that not really been your agenda? I never think about the material. I think about the sculpture and what I want to make. Certain materials present themselves to me, enable me to achieve what I want to achieve. Um, sorry, I'm probably not using this properly. I'm not conscious about, about them being macho at, at all. Um, I mean, this may be a generational thing. I'm, I'm not quite sure. Um, I mean, I think the this is cast bronze. You know, I make it originally. I made it in plaster and wood, which you could say are relatively soft materials. But it was intended to be um, in metal, and I just like metal. You know, it's back to my grandfather's tools. Now, I'm really sorry. I absolutely do not think about any kind of gender at all. Your partner is also an artist. Yes. Have is. you noticed that you've had any different kinds of experiences in how your work is received? Well, I do remember one gallery not um, being very interested in the work, um, and then they suddenly realised it was mine and not my partner's. <laughs> and I have to say this was in Italy, which is an extremely macho country, but we're talking in the 70s. So, you know, um, plus you had to pay off the mafia. Uh, so, you know, it was, it, was, uh, it was a tough one. I mean, again, going back into the 60s, I don't know whether this is relevant or not really, but there was a kind of assumption that women would stop making things because they would stop and bring up a family. And that was boring, you know. I mean, if you wanted to do that, and some women artists did and continued and went, um, went or went back to their work, um, I chose not to. I just carried on. But I had to go through. It, it felt like I had to work through. I had to do time. There was very much a feeling that you had to just keep going to show that you were going to keep going. <laughs> you were serious, yeah. <laughs> yeah. 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 Um, do you find that people have assumptions about who's um, initiated a certain bit of a collaborative work you make? With oh, Tamika. Yeah, I think we confuse people. And yes, of course, people do tend to want to know, well, who did which bit of this work? You know, and they can make, make assumptions. Um, I mean, in a, in a very practical way, one of the things about collaborating with another artist is that you share skills. And um, in, a, in a fairly sort of stereotypical way, I suppose I tend to be... I like using wood, I like using hard materials, I like measuring things, I, I like constructing things. Um, I'm not so naturally drawn to soft materials. Um, naturally? Or, uh, but I, I still... Um, well, that doesn't mean to say I don't want to, want to do them, but, but uh, my, my tendency is to go towards kind of structural things, whereas Tomiko is, has a, an, an inkling, not that she doesn't do those things, but she is, I think, better at knowing how to use clay or it's a freer use of, of something like of clay or plaster or uh, fabric. And so it's great. You complement each other and you can work between and utilise all, all of those different skills. But yeah, coming back to your question, you're, you're right. People do tend to want to know um, and identify different works with an individual. And this all comes back to this notion of... of being, uh, and I suppose we enjoy the confusion that collaboration can create where, well, where is the work? You know, whose work is it? It, 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 that's the very point, in a way. Is, I like is, the idea that you kind of create this, this other artist, maybe a kind of polymorphously gendered artist, which I think that's something we can look to art to do. I'm thinking of a brilliant exhibition at the Pompidou in the 90s called um, Masculine, Feminine, Le Sexe d'Art, The Sex of Art, as if art it's, it's not about the gender of who makes it, mm. Um, but that art itself is a kind of desiring machine that has its own... I think, you know, there was sort of Duchamp in the background and bachelor machines and all that yeah. kind of thing. Yeah. I think that's... 
I've just come back from China and uh, uh, visiting an, an art school there, and I couldn't believe how uh, macho the sculpture is there. And I keep trying to sort of find out and put my finger on what, what's different. And, of course, the, the, they haven't really... It's a terrible generalization, but a lot of artists in China haven't really developed an interest in Duchamp, for example. Um, so there's a sort of chunk of modernism which is kind of missing. Um, and there's a kind of romance still, r romantic uh, approach to the whole idea of making art about kind of expression and emotion that changed in Western art quite a long time ago and uh, became uh, far more interested in a kind of critical conceptual distancing from the whole process of what it is to make art and to reveal well, emotion. Is, yeah, there's also the whole legacy of heroic art, heroic art and the male artist as a kind of, as a sort of unstated male artist who is a kind of lone individual, you know, forging this sort of anti-establishment path. But that's a very individualistic and sort of phallic idea yeah. of art making. Mm -hmm. I think one of the kind of interesting moments in sort of Western art practice was when you started to get the kind of um, landform, you know, scatter art, art that wasn't about a single object, that was about things where the, the sort of boundaries were quite diffuse, there was a lot of stuff on the floor, you've got artists working with soft materials, you know, obviously a lot of feminist artists, but also Robert Morris, felts, things like that. Then it became like the collapse of this kind of heroic ideal. And then in the 90s, we had a moment that I particularly, it was abject art, which was really down and dirty and really about this kind of depressive position. Mm -hmm. So I think it's almost like a kind of nascent avant-garde, as China still is, is still probably in the heroic phase to some extent. It's still about saying, we have to forge a path for the artist. You know, we, and obviously they've got a backdrop of like state propaganda. So this idea of the lone artist is probably something, it's kind of like a stage perhaps they need to go through and it takes a, a much more developed and confident art scene to then appreciate, you know, Carla Black's rooms full of talcum powder, pigmented talcum powder, which may not really look like anything. It's not a solid object. It's a very unstable object and that's perhaps just a different phase of an art, of an art scene. Um, it's certainly complicated. So that was my pet theory. But um, Coco, um, I was asking about, um, I guess, assumptions. Mm -hmm. Do you, I mean, your name is obviously quite girly, and pe but do you find it's different when people um, encounter your work and don't know about you? Or have you not really had that experience? Um, I can't, I mean, I haven't got specific sort of anecdotes except for maybe um, I don't know if it's so much about not knowing my gender but there was um, in the, when I graduated from the Royal Academy at the uh, school's show at the end, the opening um, a gentleman sort of approached me and uh, to tell me what sculpture should be but it should be something that you um, could knock your shins against, you know, and he sort of demonstrated by walking over to my work and sort of, you know, trying to knock his shins against it. And it was a kind of... Uh, obviously, he knew I, I'd made the work and, um, and was kind of having a dig at it, but, you know, it was a kind of cantankerous sort of way of approaching it. Um, but, no, I mean, I think... I work in quite a lot of... Obviously, you can see from some of the images that um, there are quite a lot of different strains to the practice. So I think I quite often get the question, um, did you make, all, make it all yourself? You know, is your hand in everything? Sort of, uh, did you do that? Did you do that? You know, it's as if, um, I guess, because there are quite a lot of different processes involved. And I think, um, for me, I mean, I do... Um, on occasion, when I have the occasion to work with fabricators, I have done so. And um, I feel that there are quite a lot of collaborative um, moments in the work. And so whether or not I've 
um, done everything from scratch or touched every sort of mm. part of it. I feel like there's part of me in it. So it's a kind of a strange, I've always found that kind of question um, is not a straightforward one to answer in a way. But, um, but most of the processes that I do work with, I'm uh, involved in in some way. Maybe that's um, just to pick up on this question of the handmade, mm. because obviously we had the kind of conceptual era, which was you know supposedly not about the handmade, and mm. where the idea um, you know was supposedly um, more important than the kind of question of making, but. In recent years, we've, I think, had this revival of interest in tactile making, maybe even a sort of atavistic, um, you know, desire to see work that looks like the hand has been involved. And that sort of goes hand in hand with a kind of artisanal strand just mm -hmm. in contemporary life. You know, certainly, you know, be it microbrewing or stitch and bitch, there seems to be a kind of a real hunger mm -hmm. for stuff that feels more connected to bodily making um, and not just sort of, you know, remotely manufactured. But can you speak to that in maybe what you're making or reactions to your work? Yeah, I mean, I think a lot about the proximity of, I guess, the, the distance between me and the material. So sometimes I'm very close to it and at other times I'm very removed from it. So... For me, that's interesting. You know, I, I enjoy those two different kind of ideas of proximity. And also within the work, the fact that there may be something that is very um, artisanal or, you know, uh, touched and then something else which is, is not. So with the quilt laying on top of the particle board, you know, it's a kind of uneasy um, relationship between the two, or at least it kind of brings into question the value of one and the other, you know. Um, and similarly with other works that maybe have been um, displayed in a way that uh, I made a sort of, um, again, a, a reinterpretation of someone else's design, which was a chair um, originally by Marcel Brewer. And um, my remake of it sat on top of um, breeze blocks, which were set up as a, as a form of steps. And so it was kind of teetering on them. And I suppose that kind of... To me, those breeze blocks were a very sort of masculine material because they're sort of um, associated with construction and a kind of very... What was the phrase? Rub your shin. Yeah, you could knock your shins against. Your shins against. <laughs> you'd, get, you'd get a bruise. Yeah. yeah. Um, but also, I mean, that idea of kind of um, being bruised by a material, also that kind of um, maybe how a material can be a violent thing to work with or you know you can have some sort of um, bodily reaction to it interests me um, but then in in contrast working with something very soft you know that's very um, yeah in you know so uh, working with knitting or something which has a very slow process associated with it hand knitting um, in contrast to something which has a very fast process mm -hmm. um, so I guess those kind of contrasts are uh, interesting to me in the work. Anyone else want to pick up on the hand, the handmade question? Um, well, um, slightly yes, because I think actually just the, the um, a whole activity of making sculpture is about hand. It starts with a hand. Well, okay, it starts with an idea first. Um, but also, you quite often have to involve other people um, technically to help you. So there is, I mean, you're, you are sort of starting to, you know, you work as two people, mm. but there quite possibly are other people involved. Mm. Um, and there are certainly in, in my um, process. But I always ultimately actually hand finish. It's really curious. I wish I didn't. But, um, you know, the hand is not very far away. So whether you're actually knitting or crocheting or stitching or stretching the fabric or filing a piece of metal, it, it's kind of the same thing. You just try, you're just trying to express a, a different object. Um, I, th 
I think it's also important to mention that anyone who makes anything, makes sculpture or, or I'm sure painting, a lot of the work is, that's involved is moving things around, being very sort of physically involved in just shifting materials, shifting objects from one side of the studio to another or into a storage space or onto a van or, onto, or go into a, a timber yard or go into get your plaster or what. You know, there's an immense amount of just physicality uh, often involved in, in just moving stuff around. Um, just in terms of, if you could go onto that slide there, um, it was a work which I, either, neither Tamika or, or I made. No, this one here. This, um, we, we created an archive of 500 images of sculpture which um, all had a hole in it. This was sort of somehow a, a, a kind of homage to uh, Henry Moore and Barbara Hentworth when the first hole was made in sculpture you know, in the 1930s. And we invited um, six students, we paid six students to come and make um, all the sculptures, the 500 sculptures in clay. Uh, we didn't touch the clay at all ourselves uh, except to unpack the bags. And each sculpture went up on this mechanical elevator uh, five metres high and dropped into a uh, dustbin, as it were, there, or a, which actually made another sculpture. So there was a whole sort of journey from, if you like, an idea, an archive, uh, artworks that uh, were then taken out of context and made into a small photograph that was then made out of clay, a sort of production line in the process of making another work. Uh, we didn't touch any of it. So that, I suppose that was something... Um, you know, and, and there was a question, well, where is the work? What is the work? Is it that? Is it this? Is it that? Is it, was it the images on the wall? The where did directing it exist? Directing the we people, delegating yeah. the students exactly, yeah. to carry out tasks for you. Yeah. yeah. Um, well, maybe we... I mean, this isn't exactly gendered materials, but I, there might be some gender issues to kind of get to. I mean, actually, what you're pointing to, Mark, which isn't so much the the literal um, making of the work, but all the other things that you need to do to sort of facilitate the work to get out in the world and then be stored, be looked after, the work of promoting the career, um, all the other stuff that goes on around having an art practice. Um, but maybe seeing as we're trying to focus the gender issue, can you try to tease out some gender issues around that? Um. I mean, uh, you're right. Um, talk to most artists and they will tell you more than 50% of the time sometimes is spent on kind of administering the practice and running the practice and making sure other people know about it and just as you've said. I've got to admit, I'd be sunk completely if it wasn't for Tomiko because she's so much better than I am at that um, well on a computer okay. I mean just turning an image <laughs> from a photograph and onto the screen and, and you know meddling with it and, and trying to shape it up and um, so yeah, oh dear that's a bit embarrassing really yes you could say that I don't know if that's gendered or not she's just a lot better at it than What's I am I try and make up for it by making the packing cases or, okay. you know, trying to, you know, do yeah. some of the, the other stuff, going to get the timber I mean, obviously, and the boring typically, things. women have been assigned the support roles. But it's, but it's somewhat different in your case because it's a collaborative venture. But yeah. the kind of, you know, obviously, lots of artists are supported by a studio team. Yeah. I mean, artists who can afford it have a studio team and then they'll have, you know, their commercial gallery, which is predominantly staffed by women, perhaps not the director, but the, the gallerinas are predominantly women. And then, of course, curating um, has a lot of support functions as well. And that tends to be very female populated at the lower levels, not so at the senior levels. Although, you know, things have changed and certainly changed um, in, my, in my lifetime. But I mean, so I think there is a gendered issue around all the support labor that goes on um, behind the scenes is often, um, if not by women, let's say feminized subjects. I'm just thinking, I suddenly realized I've got a female gallery director. 
Which, um, we get on extremely well. Um, too, yeah. So right, so things, and actually, women have run galleries. I mean, that has been one of the roles, hasn't it? Historically, there are some stunning, very important, absolutely. Peggy Guggenheim being the immediate one who springs to mind. Um, yeah. Sorry, no, no. <laughs> that was that was kind of it, really. No, um, I mean, I, I actually don't think you can generalise because, uh, yeah. um, I mean, the the. The ability to put an image on a... You're just lazy. Yeah. Yeah, you know. I mean, um, my husband can't cope with uh, computers. Um, I, I do because I, I feel like... Well, I'm hanging on by the fingernails, you know. You've got to be able to deal with it. It's a generational thing as well, I think. That's an excuse, too. I can use the computer. No, you can. <laughs> <laughs> so it's not a generational thing, then, is it? Because you've learned. That's because I'm determined, yeah. you know. Yeah. I mean. oh, now that's okay. <laughs> what does that tell us about gender? I don't think I'm it's ge I don't think it's gender. You're just a lazy guy. <laughs> I think Sorry. there's a very gendered element to that because it's a classic excuse that oh I'm just bad at all that so I'm not going to do that, knowing that oftentimes the woman will pick it up because she can't afford to have the chaos that ensues. But anyway, um, I'm just wondering what else we want to talk about. Um, what are some other issues that are, that, you know, it doesn't necessarily have to be about your work, but what do you see? Um, and maybe, uh, you know, one of the things that I've observed, and this is probably more historically, because I think we are in a more um, kind of fluid uh, realm where gender's concerned, but historically, certainly in the the sort of period when I was coming up, you'd had artists like Mike Kelly and indeed Grayson Perry working with very overtly kind of feminized tropes of, you know, found fabrics, crocheting, tapestries, quilting and so on. And they were being hailed as these geniuses. Um, and there was something about it that bothered me. I mean, I like both of their art a lot, but I was like, well, there's tons of women doing this kind of work and there it just seems like it's, doesn't, it's not remarked upon because it's expected. It just folds back too neatly into a stereotypical expectation. Um, I still see that happening. Um, do we have the opposite thing of when a woman does something overtly really sort of butch and like working with heavy machinery, does she get celebrated? I haven't seen that to the same extent. I think that these sorts of stereotypes can be useful, you know, because they can be, um, by playing with them, uh, you can have a, a commentary, you know, you can say something through them by subverting them or by um, doing the opposite, you know, and continu continuing. Um, I think that for me, I suppose... Um, Looking back at something like the the Bauhaus School, which was very open to um, female students to a point, um, because it um, access to certain workshops was restricted, and so they often ended up in the weaving workshop when they may have wanted to be in the metal workshop, you know. But because of that um, sort of history, I think you can't. I mean, it's. Uh, materials are so sort of embedded with these histories um, it's difficult to deny that they're there so I think by accepting them sometimes it's a way of kind of, um, of uh, commenting on something you know and um, reflecting back on that past and yeah. so um, that idea of access I think um, and where it's been restricted in the past or where perhaps um, men have sort of dictated or kind of been the gatekeepers of certain um, processes or, say, hand knitting, um, which knitters' guilds were predominantly, were for men, you know, and women were, perhaps came onto the knitting scene later when, when hand knitting was kind of redundant and machine knitting came in and, um, and knitting became a hobby, you know, it became then sort of more associated with women. And I think that, um, so some of these histories and materials, I think, can't, can't be ignored. Um, it doesn't mean to say they have to stay sort of um, 
stay as they are, we can continue forward and sort of make new, make new histories. But it's um, perhaps, for me, it can be quite useful to think about those things. And um, because, yeah, I think materials can be so uh, potent, you know, they're kind of quite charged with a, with a term that came up. So um, by using those sort of charges and, um, yeah. I can't remember exactly what the question was. I think um, the most interesting of all the YBA artists um, for me is undoubtedly Sarah Lucas, uh, who is producing the most astonishingly powerful, potent work that does all of the things you're talking about. Um, you could also look at Phila de Barlo, who is working at an extraordinary scale and um, producing some outstanding work. And of course, Louise Bourgeois, and um, an amazing example of, uh, of an artist who is phenomenally versatile in using uh, many, many different materials and eliciting different meaning from materials and from imagery and objects. So compelling and opened up for me and I think many others um, a totally new way of thinking about sculpture, just being a key figure, I would say, as, as important as Brancusi was, if, if you like, back in, in the turn of the century. And I think in all three examples, there is this interplay, kind of a little bit what Coco was saying, between, um, let's say, the soft and the hard, or the kind of manufactured and the hand-produced. There is this kind of tension, which is about um, evoking different, you know, so let's say bodily associations and material cultural associations. So um, they're working with those tensions. I mean, it's interesting that you, you mentioned Louise Bourgeois, who I also think was a phenomenal woman of her time. I mean, especially when she was doing what she was doing. But I don't think she really kind of got the uh, accolade until much later. And that was very sad. In my Luckily, she lived a really long time. Well, she did. So she, she got she to did be <laughs> successful for <laughs> yeah, a pretty that, long time. Yeah, that yeah. that is true. But you know, and that is fortunate. You know, that's just the way. Mm. That's the way things go. Well, even like the career of Phila de Barlo is such a great, and this I think does show how things have changed. I mean, you know, thirty years ago, I don't think you would have had a, an artist like that who was, you know, highly respected and appreciated amongst sort of artist peers but didn't have a sort of commercial presence and then suddenly becomes, you know, Venice Biennale, major artist, serious commissions, you know, Duveen Hall at, at Tate Britain and so on. You know, being an older artist of any gender would have been a no-go and being an older woman artist would have just forget it. So I think, you know, we can see that there have been um, some, you know, really important shifts. I suppose building in some sort of trace or when it appears accidentally. Um, for me, maybe working with ceramics, sometimes when you're working in the dark, in the sense that, you know, you're glazing um, a pot to go in the kiln and you're never quite sure how it's going to come out and maybe accidentally you've got a fingerprint of a colour that you didn't intend to be there or, you know, but how maybe embracing those um, traces um, or not, you know, I think, yeah, the intention of, of the bodily in the work is quite an interesting thing. I think we're going to have to wrap things up. Thank you very much for coming this evening. Thank you. Thank you for listening. For more information about the Royal Academy, please visit www.royalacademy.org.uk.